Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Empire Strikes Back, a UK-based podcast for New York Yankees fans. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to welcome John Pesser to the show. And, and those of you who listen to our book uh, podcast will know that uh, his book, The Game, is in my top three baseball books alongside for your interest john i love jack carrie's book uh but uh, david Cohn, i think that's absolutely fantastic because you know mm-hmm. the, and i put them i put them on a, on a par just i love the love both books um but i'm delighted he's joining us today to talk about uh, his latest uh, the, the the subject of his latest book yogi berra which if you get a chance to pick up uh, and buy and read i strongly encourage you to it's a it's a substantial piece of work uh, and i can't Thank wait you. to take a, a short bit of time to to talk to you john so welcome and thanks for th- thanks for being with us uh, my pleasure, Rob. So, so what did, and I, when I say a substantial piece of work, this is a it's a brilliant. Your writing style is so inclusive, and I really felt when I when I read a book, I want to learn something new, and I learned an awful lot about this man. What did you know about Yogi before you started, and, and what was it that inspired you to write this book? Uh, the answer to both questions is uh, overlap. Uh, my father's favorite player was Yogi Berra. My father had me in pinstripes when I was four years old behind our apartment building in Queens, New York. Um, So I was always going to be a Yankee fan. He was a catcher because Yogi was a catcher. I started as a catcher because my father was a catcher. Um, And he described, uh, I was born 1952. So my first real, real um, vivid memories of, of an entire season was 1960. And by 1960, Yogi Berra is a really good role player, mostly outfielder for the New York Yankees. And my father described Yogi Berra as one of the most dynamic players in the game in the late 40s and the entire 50s. So I knew, and you know, you just have to look at this at the stats and you can see how great he was. I mean, three-time MVP uh, hits has a year in 1950, which would astound people today, but bad hit 28 home runs, 122 RBIs, thinking about it, 324, and he struck out 12 times. Um, that's that that doesn't exist in today's game and a, and a terrific, terrific catcher. So I knew the headlines. Everybody knew that Yogi was funny, um, but it was pretty clear that the that the funny part of yogi was a caricature oh. so i was both interested to go find the player that my father described to me and um and also to find out i mean he was such a he, he to his dying day was such a cultural icon i was really interested to see how someone as unlikely as yogi became such a huge part of the american culture so those were the driving forces that that made me pick Yogi. And actually, I was supposed to do a different book. And I had sold a, 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 um, a proposal to do a different book and then decided I didn't really want to do that one. And my publisher, my agent and I got together and we talked about what we wanted to do. And the first thing all three of us said was Yogi Berra. And without having had a previous conversation. So there was a, there was a pretty good consensus on my team that this was a book that needed to be needed to be done that people would want to read. 
I remember when you announced on Twitter that it was it was going to be coming out and I was interviewing Sweeney Murty on the day. Uh, and before we started recording, we were both saying how excited we were about this book to come out because the, the, you were the perfect man to write about this man as well. And it just felt that for us in for us in the UK, there's confusion about, you know, the Yogi Bear who came first. There was, you know, and it, it was right. basic stuff like that because he doesn't obviously sit in the zeitgeist for us. But to learn about him has just been so, so uh, refreshing because, of course, he would never have seen him play, would have seen short right. clips of film, but but uh, an astonishing man. And, and I think if I just start at the beginning, because I think the for me, one of the most compelling things is the sacrifices that his his family make, his brothers make for him to continue. You know, they recognised his potential at such a young age. Right. That, that his dad wanted him to, to work and they really made, made did the extra hours, didn't they, for him, just as so he could Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, the interesting thing, I mean, the first book I wrote, The Game, starts in 1990. Well, not, by 1990, I'm an established journalist. I've covered baseball. I knew all the players. Obviously, I'm living in 1990. Uh, so I understand the era. Uh, Yogi grows up in the Depression which is still, you know, we've all read about it. And thankfully, you haven't had to live through anything like that again. But, you know, I've, I know I've talked to my parents who lived through it and my mother-in-law has lived through it. And, you know, not knowing whether you're going to have a, uh, a meal, not knowing whether you're going to have a job, you know, the ground beneath you is shaking. Growing up in, in that sort of atmosphere is, is such a, a different thing that, um, you know, especially, I mean, Yogi's Parents were were uh, had immigrated from from Italy, and soccer is the only sport that they knew. And work is the reason you came to to America, and uh, to get a to get a decent job. And so when you're old enough to uh, to work, and that meant you know probably no longer than eighth or ninth grade, um, you went to work. And his he had three brothers, three older brothers, and a younger sister. And the brothers were all good players. And Yogi would always tell people that his oldest brother, Tony, was the best uh, athlete. They all had offers. They all had uh, tryouts. Um, who knows how far they would have gone, but they all seemed to be really, really good players. And the father said, no, you're going to work. And so Yogi comes, you know, comes of age. And yeah, they saw it in him. Um, they all loved baseball and they said that they volunteered to work extra so that he could get his chance. I mean, that's, you know, an unbelievable sacrifice and that Yogi never, ever, ever forgot. I mean, you know, all the things that mold who you are, you know, his whole life's work and his whole, you know, the life that he enjoyed was built on the sacrifice of, of others. And that's, you know, that certainly had did, went a long way to shape his value system. I, I, I found it. I found it so inspired, you know, because uh, when you see the choices that you make to pursue a career, uh, the fact that the, the brothers you know, accepted that their time wasn't to come and that Yogi's focus. He's, he just I love the idea of him sitting there reading his comic books and he, leave, he, he leaves he leaves this. I think maybe uh, people thought he was uh, as intelligent as he was, but he, he obviously just had a number of his brain worked in a way to make the most of the opportunities that were, were presented to him. Uh, and, and uh, there's a friend, the, the friend now, forgive me, cause we, the, the pronunciation, is it Joey uh, Garangiola? Garangiola. So we, we don't have it. He obviously he turned, he reading about it. He turned into a big star on TV in the States and I don't right. not necessarily have the awareness of him here. 
we have to mention the yogiisms, which I think uh, often sure. start with him. Right. Uh, how frustrated was he by them, in, in in your opinion, or was it something he used for his benefit in the long term? Oh, I th- Yogi was um, Yogi made it through eighth grade. Uh, the last two years were probably just waiting it out. Um, so he had basically a sixth grade education, um, but he was a sharp businessman. Hmm. And while the negative connotations of of the coverage of him, which was very heavy, um, especially since he was Italian. One of the things I learned was the just how much discrimination there was against Italians in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know that there was a large number of Italians who were in internment camps during World War II. Uh, I just didn't know. Um, I grew up with a lot of Italian kids uh, you know, in the fifties and sixties, I just didn't know that there was such a negative stereotype, uh, against Italians. Um, he looked different. He sounded different. Um, he did, doesn't, he didn't sound intelligent. Um, and he would say, you know, funny things. Some people are just naturally funny. They just put words together and sentences together. And he's, he was one of those people. Um, Joe Garagiola certainly contributed a lot to the yogiisms and there would be, it got to the point towards the end. And then I'll get back to the important part of your question, um, where, you know, if, if somebody heard something, uh, that it said, well, that sounded like a, that sounds like a yogiism. So he said that and it would get attributed to him. And, you know, he said probably about 20% or more of the things that are attributed to him um were not you know were not said by him and certainly some of them were were polished yogi you know yogi was one of the first um television stars in america and that's something that i you know that really came across in my research i mean the arc of the development of of television in america and the arc of yogi's career pretty much track and so baseball is the only sport in, in America at that point. I mean, it was baseball, horse racing, and boxing. So baseball is the great American sport. It's on television. And of course, the game of the week always had the Yankees. And of course, every October, the Yankees were on TV. And the World Series back then was treated, every game of the World Series was treated the way the Super Bowl is treated now. And so the world stopped. And when when the World Series was on, everybody had transistor radios stuck to their ears and your sixth grade teacher would allow the game to be, you know, someone to play the radio because the games were all played during the day. Um, So he was and he got uh, he endorsed everything from cigarettes to soft drinks to fishing oil. Um, So he got that these yogiisms um, helped him uh, as a salesman. I don't know that he sat down and figured it out as much as he just innately knew it. And he also married a very, very bright woman uh, who, who, while she really, really resented the negative portrayals of her husband, also understood the value of the yogiisms and also the value of, you know, his friend growing up when they were, when he was playing American Legion ball here, um, which is an amateur baseball for kids kids being 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, and uh, one of his friends um, nicknamed him Yogi. And that was like one of the greatest gifts anyone could ever give someone. 
who grows up to be famous. And so he's a one, a one, a one name celebrity that people around the world, if you said Yogi knew who he was. And um, so, you know, he, and, and certainly by the, in the last 25 years of, of Yogi's life, when he was the elder statesman and the wise old man, so had, had more from being the funny character to being a wise man. I mean, that was income for his children. I mean, they made those into books. They, you know, he was always a top drawer at autograph shows, which, which would, he would, some of the people who went with him were, and I'm not talking about other, other uh, athletes, but business managers or just friends would go to some of these signings with him and, and he would come home with $40,000, $50,000 to, you know, for an afternoon of signing his name to whatever people put in front of him. Um, that's not a bad way to make a living. That's not bad, is it? I mean, it was, I, 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 that, one of the things I absolutely love about the book is because you get a sense of, of his wife's uh, relationship, their, their relationship and her, it, right, right at the end with the, with, the, with the Steinbrenner situation, she just strikes me as somebody who fiercely protective of, of her love. You know, loved him unconditionally. Absolutely. Uh, and, and would protect. And, and, and uh, it was just such a, it was lovely reading it. You, you could get, you got the sense of this really beautiful relationship between the two of them. That he, he always had a safety net to go home to. And when you look at how other players in various sports react in their domestic life, they, they wouldn't necessarily live one in the same way that he has done. Right. I mean, he they were together for 65 years. Uh, in my first book, I interviewed um, Brett Butler, who was a center, used to be a center fielder for the Dodgers and a couple of other teams, uh, minor league manager, and also someone who is uh, concerned about uh, other players. And he and his wife formed, a, formed an organization to help um, marriages during um, uh, both during your career, but most important, right after your career. And he said, he starts the conversation out with me and saying, how many, um, what do you think the divorce rate is uh, for, for baseball players when they retire? Now the divorce rate in the United States is 50%. So I know it's high. And he goes, it's 85%, 85%. And, and so you then look at a 65 year old, 65 year uh, marriage um, in the context of, of that, and it is quite extraordinary. They were, they were a team. I mean, they were absolute team. Um, Carmen never let him do any, didn't, Yogi didn't do anything around the house. His hands were his tools. And so he did not, um, there was a funny story. I don't think I put it in the book, but there's a funny story that her, his nephew told me. His nephew is a, um, uh, head of, of, of uh, natural resources for the state of Missouri for like 40 years, uh, an outdoorsman. Yogi uh, lived in New Jersey, a time when New Jersey was still kind of like, you know, uh, suburbs that had a lot of wildlife. So anyway, long story short, um, Carmen calls up her, her nephew and says, there's, there's a, um, uh, a beaver living under our deck. You know, what do I do about that? And he says, okay, so here's how you put, set up the trap. Here's how you get dressed to do it. Um, and I'll come over and I'll help him. By the time he gets there, he sees Carmen crawling under the deck in the clothes that he had described for Yogi. Because we, don't, we, we do not ask Yogi to do anything around the house. <laughs> I mean, he is, you know, this is, you know, this is his career. 
and yeah. you know this this is what he needs and so yeah it was it was quite a partnership and all decisions were made and and i'll leave it at this um it's not a coincidence that i mean when yogi played there was no free agency it was pre-marvin miller he was on one year renewables always tied to the yankees so the only way you could get um more money is to hold out and if you held out, there was a whole minor league system of people to replace you. So, so there were very rarely did, did people hold out, but Yogi got married in, in, at the end of his second year in baseball. And surprise, surprise, after his third year, um, Yogi doesn't report to spring training. And you know him and Carmen set a number, and unless the Yankees were gonna meet that number, he wasn't coming. And he was so essential to the success of that of of that that team probably the most dominant stretch of any team in 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 the history of baseball five straight world series in in the 50s uh world series titles that um and he's a three-time mvp during that stretch so yogi is one of the one two three best players in the game and they finally after after two holdouts i finally realized we're just gonna have to give him basically what he wants And, and they did. So they made a great, they were a great team, an absolute great team. And I, I love that in the book, but it, when it comes to revisiting the contracts and that sense of, of self and confidence and, and, and his worth, when, when, yeah. because I was reading, you know, people were mocking the way he looked and they're mocking the yogis and that a lot of people would have crumbled under those kind of experiences when he, I was reading, you know, when he first, when he first started playing, oh, because of his arms were so right. long and all those things. Yep. Uh, and that's, uh, I, I found that quite inspirational, actually, that he was able to get that, you know, get, uh, get across that. Um, I, I have to, because I know your, your time is tight. We, we've got to mention the the um, the Navy experience. And I think a lot of people didn't know or wouldn't have known about his his time in the Navy and his right. the secret missions on the on the rocket ships or, uh, as they were. Can you just let us know a little bit about that and how you found out about that? Sure. Uh I mean, people know that Yogi was in the Navy, and that's about all people really know. And, you know, think about World War II veterans, and I've known a lot of them, this is my father's generation, is um, didn't talk about their experience um, at war at all. You, you couldn't get them to talk about it. And, you know, Yogi was 18 years old. He was on a, on a, on a base, and he was bored. It was Norfolk, Virginia, and they asked for volunteers for a secret mission and Yogi's hand shoots up and and he volunteers. And it turns out that it was for these boats, little boats, 36 feet long, wooden hull, slab of metal, half, you know, half half of the top rocket launches in the back. And they were literally the first uh, wave of the invasion at Normandy. And, you know, he goes over there as an, I just can't imagine being at war and shooting and killing people at age eight ever, but at age 18 and 19, and he's in the greatest invasion in, in the history of the world. And, but the thing that really, the chilling thing that really got to me was, you know, going after his training in America, going over to England in basically just a big scooped out hull of, of a boat that had these rocket boats lined up on the hull and knowing that at any minute, a German submarine torpedo could come through that hull and kill you. 
and think, you know, hearing him talk about that, that it was, it was bad going, but the coming back, knowing you've survived, uh, you survived being shot at, you've survived the life that you've lived for, for 13 months um, of the European theater of the war. And now you're going home to see your family and you're safe and you got to make it through the, um, all the submarines. And he just said, you know, that was the most, that was the most um, afraid that he ever was in his life was that trip over thinking that I'm, they, they're going to, they're going to hit the boat and, and I'm going to die. Um, again, you know, you talk about the profound influences on, on you growing up. I mean, by the time Yogi is 19, he's been through a depression and he's been through a world, you know, a world war and the greatest invasion in the history of the world. Um, that's amazing. It's, it's hard to, I mean, intellectually, I think we can understand that, but emotionally, the story I think that, that captures it the most was there's a very, very nice museum. If any one from England ever gets over to New York and, and is interested in, in baseball, uh, the Yogi Berra Museum, which is a 15 minute train ride from New York City in Montclair, um, it's just a terrific little museum and, and really captures a slice of the era, an era in baseball that was just absolutely fascinating. And before it opens, uh, a group of veterans from the Navy come to give him an award at the museum. And the director of the museum told me the story and the, the group of about 12 veterans, um, they walk in and Yogi comes out from behind and they all look at each other and they st stand there talking and even, I mean, they stand looking at each other and before they could even start talking about things, they all just start crying because it all just, everything that has been suppressed for all these years just comes right to the top. And what a horror, what a horror show they lived through. And um, so that's really, that, that I thought that story really hit me hard of what it must've been like to be a kid and being at war. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was staggering uh, to, because I have a lot of family history involved in, in World War II. And so did these, uh, didn't know about these secret missions, of course, and that these things happened. And I would never expect to find that from a baseball book, you know, to find out those I, things. But that's, that's the depth of this man's experiences. That's why he was uh, the legend that he is. What, do you think in terms of, as the major league player, obviously he was alongside Joe DiMaggio and, and, and at, at that time he was the, mm. the, the ultimate celebrity, I'm guessing, in baseball. Right. He was probably the most famous man in, in, the, in the country, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, I get the impression he seemed to form a, a good relationship with him. There the, the seemed, to, you know, because he, he seemed, at first he strikes me as a frosty man, Joe DiMaggio, but he's found somebody that he's willing to comfortable with huh? yeah, yeah I mean, joe yeah. dimaggio was arrogant i met him a couple of times but i mean and he, even his friends i mean he was arrogant he was a perfectionist he understood his role um as an italian um there was there's a saying yeah, in baseball or feeling in baseball that there were three men who carried special burdens, obviously Jackie Robinson, um, but also Joe DiMaggio for Italians and Sandy Koufax for Jews. And that that there was a picture in the sporting news that I saw of of Joe DiMaggio, Phil Rizzuto and Yogi Berra standing together, just holding bats out. But the caption basically read, look, three Italians who don't kill people. 
mm. because you know when you thought Italian, you thought the mafia, and and you it was it, again another thing that really hit home about the about the discrimination against Italians. And Joe, I mean Yogi, everyone liked Yogi, um, and but also the the uh the work ethic that, that yogi had and the fact that they were italian so they had shared experience um they they were i mean yogi thought basically thought that joe worked walked on water most baseball players thought that i mean he was just so good and he just pressed so hard to be good there's a famous story i don't mean to i, I gotta tell you one of the Temptations while I was researching that part of the book is Joe DiMaggio is such a fascinating subject that it was easy to get lost in Joe DiMaggio's story. Um, and there was just so much. Richard Bed Kramer, if you want to read a really, really great baseball book, Richard Ben Kramer's biography of Joe DiMaggio is an absolute must read. It tells you so much about the man, but also so much about the era that, that, uh, that he lived in. And it's just, just a terrific book. Okay, and uh, you know, Yogi, basically people think it went from, um, Joe DiMaggio to, uh, to Mickey Mantle. And in terms of stardom, it went from Joe DiMaggio to Yogi Berra for a long time before it became Mickey Mantle. And I grew up like every kid my age in New York, wanting to be Mickey Mantle, wanting to play center field for the New York Yankees. And, uh, you know, of the Mount Rushmore of the Yankees. It's Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle. And after doing the research uh, for this book and living this book for five years, um, if Yogi didn't replace my then idol, uh, Mickey Mantle, as the fourth, then there's five. Because Yogi was as important of a player to the Yankees as anyone in Yankee history. And that is a big statement, but it is true. Without him, there's a great line from, from um, uh, Casey Stengel, who loved Yogi um, and played him to death. I mean, you know, you look at in baseball today, if a catcher catches a night game, he doesn't catch the day game, and we don't do double headers anymore. And Yogi would catch back-to-back -back double headers, four games in two days in August in New York City and you know, where it's hot and steamy and uh, the writers and they, and they had a series of backup catchers that eventually would get traded and make the all-star team. So it wasn't like they didn't have good players behind them. And so, so Stengel was asked, why do you catch um, uh, Yogi Berra so much? And his answer was, well, when I catch Mr. Berra, we win championships. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like okay pretty hard to argue and that, <laughs> that was it yeah i mean it's his time as a, as a player and as a manager um so i became a baseball fan post george steinbrenner right. um and, An and interesting i don't know subject in and of self yeah i mean i i don't know how i would have got on being a fan with, with that kind of lead i mean i don't particularly like the leadership there is at the moment anyway it has to be said you know in terms of the messages that we get in the uk you know it just feels a little bit uh, processed a little bit too manipulated the messages that we get you know you, you don't get mm -hmm. to know the players in the same you know it's a little bit too corporate there I say right no that's how yeah what what was the what was the difference between Yogi as a manager and Yogi as a player in terms of his mindset and how he felt about baseball well, actually there wasn't any difference and that was one of the problems um that I think he had 
right. mean, Yogi, um, Yogi knew what obviously knew what it was to be a player. Um, Yogi was one of the things, the most fascinating things about Yogi that I didn't know. And I thought I knew a lot about just the background of Yogi as a player was that he came very close to not being a catcher. Um, his first, the first two years, the manager was Bucky Harris. Uh, they won a championship and lost uh, the, the, the American League uh, title in the second to the last day of the season in, in Harris's second year. And then they fired him um, because George Weiss wanted somebody who told him what the players were doing in their off hours. And, and Harris refused to do that. When, when at the end of the second year, um, it was pretty much assumed that Yogi was going to play left field. And they fired Harris brought in um, uh, Casey Stengel, uh, catchers in those days, if you had a catcher who could hit 250, hit 10 home runs, knock in 40 runs, you had a pretty good catcher. And uh, because the catcher's job was to catch and uh, handle the pitching staff. Uh, and um, Yogi was terrible at those things, just terrible. And, and, uh, Stengel brings in Bill Dickey, uh, Hall of Fame catcher, great defensive catcher, great offensive catcher, and uh, and and says Stengel tells him, "Tell me if you if we can make this guy into a catcher because if, if I got a catcher who can hit the way Barra can hit, uh, we have something special." And the first couple of days did not go well, and Dickey basically challenged him and said listen, if you don't want to do this, I'm not going to waste my time, you know? Uh, so, but if you're going to work, then we'll do it. Two hours a day, he worked at becoming a catcher and he went from being a terrible catcher to being one of the best defensive catchers and strategists of, of knowing hitters and knowing how to pitch to, to, to hitters that ever played catcher. And as, um, as a manager, he just, he said he, his job was to put people in the position to succeed and that's the job. And so I don't have to tell you to take care of yourself because you know your job the next day is to come in and, and play baseball. And on Joe DiMaggio's Yankees, nobody um, came in uh, hung over the next day because Joe would have killed you. And that's the way Yogi looked at the game. And that's not the way the game was evolving huh. as the money grew and um, the celebrity uh, grew and it became a more national sport. You know, when Yogi started the furthest West of uh, Western team was St. Louis in Missouri, which is in the middle of the country. Uh, there were, you know, so being a, a national star was, was not really, unless you were the, you know, unless you were Joe DiMaggio. You know, people didn't know all that much about you. So he treated the players the way he was treated. And um, it, he also understood that baseball was a marathon, not a sprint. So if we lose today, hey, you know, we'll come in, we're going to try hard. We'll win. It was always positive and didn't really come down on players, which um, ended up being a problem for him. That said, the man won, um, uh, was in the World Series, first guy, to, first manager to ever be in the World Series from the National League and the American League. Huh. His, his record as a manager, you know, he would be making millions of dollars today as that manager. 
Um, so, you know, people really underestimate the job that he did, but he was a winner. And that's basically really sums Yogi up as, as an athlete was he won. He won all the time. And he was willing to make the sacrifices to, to, to do that. I mean, I, and I think uh, the, the time away, because obviously in his, in his second tenure, he sacked after 16 games. And that's why I mentioned Carmen's role and in, in, in the, the anger about that and then not revisiting Yankee Stadium for such a long period of time. Right. Do you think he was, because I read a lot about Steinbrenner, he was the person who could stand up to Steinbrenner. He, he wasn't intimidated by Steinbrenner. He, 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 part of his confidence and his, in his own abilities. Right. I mean, you know, Yogi, um, Yogi thought he'd be able to manage under him. He wanted the job. Everyone told him not to take the job. That was the 80s. Uh, George Steinbrenner comes in in 74, um, uses, um, uses free agency to change the game, became a huge celebrity um, doing commercials. I mean, this is an owner and everybody knows who he is. He's one of the most famous men in America. Um, and he demanded he was um, he talking about George Steinbrenner is about a 10 hour podcast easy, uh, <laughs> but he was a difficult man to work for. Let, let's put it at that. He was afraid of hiring Yogi because he understood the blowback that he would get from uh, the fans who loved Billy Martin, but not in the way they loved Yogi Berra. And when, when, uh, you know, when he fired Berra, the, you know, both, on the players and and in the fans, the it was like okay, George Steinbrenner was like the most hated man in New York for doing what he did, and you know when Yogi left that day when he was fired, his son was still was on the team. They had traded for him in the offseason, Dale Bearer, and Yogi told the writers, "Hey, you know you'll see me around. I'm going to come see um, uh, Dale play." And, uh, you know, the stadium was Yogi's home. And, and I think he got home and some of what happened sunk in a little bit more, but also Carmen said, you ain't going back. Huh. And his best, you know, one of his best friends is John McMullen, who was a minority partner, very rich man, who um, uh, really smart engineer who made a fortune. And uh, he told, you know, he was George's minority partner you know, owned like 2% of the Yankees, sold that to become the uh, manager of the Houston, uh, the owner of the Houston Astros, offered Yogi the managing job. And at that point, you know, Yogi's now 65. And I think Carmen said that that's it. Let's yeah. just enjoy the rest of our lives. So he coached there for a while, but he didn't, you know, there's a big difference between coaching in the United States on baseball and being the manager. And, uh, you know, I think it was it's something that grew and grew the boycott um, to the point where they retired. They had a day for Phil Rizzuto, who was his best friend, and uh, he didn't go. He loved Don Mattingly. They retired Mattingly's number. Mattingly asked him to come. He wouldn't go. And uh, he loved Joe Torrey. And Torrey said, I'd really like you come to come to the ring ceremony after one of their World Series. He wouldn't come. And uh, finally, the people at the museum and Susan Waldman, who was working for WFAN radio at the time, brokered a deal. And I think George, George was always afraid of dying of Alzheimer's, which is what he ended up 
dying from complications of Alzheimer's over a long period of time, about 10 years. And um, I think he realized uh, the end, if it wasn't tomorrow, but he could see that the end was, was closer than the beginning and it was time to make amends. And the, one of the first things he did was he agreed to, uh, to go to um, Barra's museum and apologize to him. And that's something that is so out of character for those people who we had talked about this before we went on air, um, who watched the American series on HBO, Secession. Um, you, the guy who's the, the father doesn't apologize. And George didn't apologize, but he did that day. And, and they, be, they ended up becoming great friends, which says a lot, I think, about both men, but especially Yogi, who was so wronged by George Steinberg. Yeah, it's, it was a, a beautiful story when he turns up late and you could, they embrace at the museum. I, I, you know, it was, it, 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 it read beautifully. You can imagine you were there and what a special moment that would have been. I know, I know you've got to go. So I've, I've, got to, I've got to briefly ask, when we talk about ownership, we're in a bit of stasis at the moment in terms of the game of baseball. And, and right. as, as fans in this country, we're trying to introduce baseball to other British fans and go, this is this brilliant game. It's about four and a half hours long sometimes. And <laughs> Yankee and Red Sox is going to be four and a half hours. Yeah, right. you know, and there's lots of swings and misses. You really should try this game. Uh, and, and then when we get people doing it, of course, we're, we're, we're in a, a lockout at the moment. How, what do you predict is going to happen? Do you have any idea how this is going to go? Um. I think the owners are, uh, we'll put it this way. The owners are very happy with the agreement they have. Sure, they'd like more and they may might even be asking for more negotiations, but in the last year, revenues are up $2 billion and salaries are down 6%. So they're doing well. The disagreement's working for them. It's not working as well for, for the baseball players and they want uh, they want some fundamental changes and they're asking for some, some, some big, uh, there's some big asks on the table. They want a year back for arbitration instead of three, uh, at, after two years, uh, three years, they want it after two years and they want uh, free agency to go down to five years, which is, the, which is a big one. And, and other things like that. And the owners don't think that the leadership of the own of the union can keep the union together. And, they're not going to tell you that, but I've heard that for the last four years, um, that that's the way they think. Um, a very different group of owners now. There's someone just did a story about the top 20 um, known owners in net worth, and there are, I believe, 16 billionaires uh, who own baseball teams. Um, they're not going to miss lunch if there's no games. No. Um, they know it'll hurt their game, but Certainly, they're going to test them in spring training. The lockout's not going to, they're not going to lift the lockout. Uh, so I think we're going to miss, I think it's guaranteed that we will miss time in spring training because it won't get serious until spring training is there. You know, right now it's like this cushion that, okay, we can, we, we can argue, but and nothing really happens. Sure, there's some free agents who didn't sign and that'll, that'll happen and they're missing the publicity they would get in the off season because people are really interested in what my team's gonna look like next year and who they're signing. And it's a big part of baseball. So they're missing that. But um, in terms of the two sides negotiating, I don't think it happens until there's uh, until the pressure's on and the pressure's on when spring training starts. And I think if we, I think the best case is 
a week to two week of lockout. And a worst case is this goes into the season. Wow. And I can see I, the one thing I don't see is this being wrapped up before, before the, the lockout. If, if that's the case, then an awful lot of people who have told me what basically what I've told you um, are going to be really surprised. And they're the, and they're the people who run the game. So yeah. we, we, we wait and we wait to see who the shortstop that we finally that we finally get. <laughs> uh, I am waiting as well. I, don't <laughs> think, I will say I do not think it's going to be Correa from the Astros. I just don't think they're going to do that. No, I can't, I can't see that happening myself. John, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, my pleasure, been Rod. This has been a pleasure. lot of fun. So, if you want to do it again sometime, uh, my would be. My I would love pleasure. that. I would. I would love maybe revisit the game because and and to everyone listening, please get these books. They're absolutely superb, and I, and I and I love them. So, thank you very much for joining us, John. Where where uh, people can follow you on Twitter, can't they? Uh, on Twitter, yeah, I don't use Facebook very much anymore. Kind of my silent protest to, against Mark Zuckerman. But uh, yes, I'm on Twitter uh, all the time. So the time. Yeah. they can find me there. Yeah, uh, don't be surprised, though, if most of the commentary, especially with the lockout, is about politics. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's worth reading just for that alone. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much, John. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself, Rob.